Well, first of all, a little correction. You see, I'm honored to be called Professor Elst, maybe one day. But right now, I am not professor. And thereby hangs a tale. Um, precisely the um, current representative here by uh, Sheldon Pollock um, is uh, fairly responsible for blocking my access to the academic system. You see, at the time after I graduated, there was the Ayodhya affair in India. And so I took a stand on that, on the Hindu side, or rather on the scientific side, because asserting that there was a Hindu temple there, uh, displaced by the uh, mosque, uh, is simply a fact of history. And so all real historians should have said that. They said the opposite. And Sheldon Pollock himself has taken the Ayodhya controversy at the time as the reason for his own uh, research into the Ramayana and trying to prove that it was inherently oppressive. So he is one of the people who now really uh, should apologize to the public for asserting something that turned out not to be true. In fact, at that time, we already knew enough about it. We had already enough evidence to be sure that there was a temple there. But if, you know, if there was any doubt, now we certainly know. You know, we have the excavations. We have found the foundations of the temple. So not only to Sheldon Pollock, but to Romola Tapar and so on, it really is only proper that they apologize. Now, one chapter in this book that has uh, very much caught my attention is the one on Buddhism. You may not sufficiently realize it, but Buddhism has been turned into a mighty weapon against Hinduism. Like, you see, when Hindus say, uh, oh, Muslims have destroyed so many temples and so on, then pat comes the answer, ah, but Hindus have also destroyed Buddhist temples and Nalanda University and so on. That's not true, but it's a very common story, and Hindus are often not uh, ready to uh, respond to it. Now, one thing that the Pollock School asserts is that uh, the Buddha was a social revolu revolutionary. I don't think he invented that. It uh, already started in the 19th century when European scholars started seeing the Buddha a bit like Jesus vis-a-vis -vis Judaism. Jesus was born as a Jew, but then he started something, at least according to the Gospel, because we don't know how true all this is, but according to the Gospel, he started something new. He uh, threw away uh, Jewish law, though at some point he says that he came to fulfill Jewish law anyway, but Christianity as it developed, especially since St. Paul, uh, dropped many Jewish things and became a new religion. And so in the same sense, they took um, the Buddha as starting something new. In fact, if you read the life of the Buddha in the original sources, you do not find any moment at which the Buddha breaks with Hinduism. Or, with, you know, the term Hinduism didn't exist yet, but that he breaks with whatever traditions existed around him. Um, but so he was construed then in the fashionable ideas that came up in the 19th century that became very fashionable in the 20th century, namely egalitarianism especially, 
And so he came to break the uh, oppressive caste system and bring egalitarianism. Now, the truth is that the Buddha was an elitist par excellence. Of course, by his background already, he was the son of the president for life of the uh, Shakya Republic. He was a member of the Senate of the Shakya Republic. He was a Kshatriya, an upper caste person. Uh, he called his teachings Arya. And, you know, many Hindus uh, make a big effort to prove that this means noble. Well, yes, but in the context of the Buddha, it still retains something of the ancient meaning of upper caste, of part of the Vedic culture. You know, the upper castes were given the Vedic initiation with Upanayana. And so that is still there. Also his physique, you know, he is described as being very tall and very wide-skinned relative to the average uh, in Bihar where he came from. So that is not exactly the stereotype of a tribal, of a so-called native, as against the so-called Aryan invaders. Uh, so we find very little of that social revolutionary thing, especially if we look at what he was about. You see, he was teaching a spiritual path, a specific system of meditation. Now, if you want to do meditation, if you want to reach liberation, then one thing not to do is to start a social movement. Because, you see, he strongly warns against uh, worldly attachments, worldly desires, and so on. <clears throat> but there, at least, some people manage to fulfill their desires. Many people dream of becoming rich. Some people also do become rich. You know, it, it can be done, you know, not in every case, but some people do it. But, you know, if you want to reform society, if you want to create a utopia, that's a far, far, far bigger job. You see, the rest of your life you'll be doing nothing but that. You can forget about your spiritual path. So, you see, if you do history like these people, like the Pollock School, for instance, like the, the Neo-Ambedkarites in India do, you know, you project modern concerns, modern egalitarianism onto ancient uh, figures like uh, the Buddha, and then you just have bad history. You have propaganda. You see? And so, you know, in creating his uh, spiritual path, the Buddha mostly draws from whatever he found around him. You see, he, he had two uh, yoga teachers, you know, who taught him all kinds of techniques. And of course, at some point he left them and he wanted to do better. You see, but that is normal. You see, in Hindu history, you have many of these cases. And, you know, you are free to, you know, you don't stay a pupil forever at some point, you know, you find your own way, and this is normal, this is permitted. Um, uh, Richard Gombrich, a, um, a typical uh, anti-Hindu scholar of Buddhism, you see, who uh, essentially assumes that Hinduism bad, Buddhism good, you know, that's the, the very short formula for this line of scholarship. You know, even though he is anti-Hindu, he nevertheless documents that the Buddha several times 
quotes the Burhadaranya Upanishad. And of course, you see, when Buddha gave sermons, you know, it didn't come with footnotes. You know, he didn't say, oh, you know, this is taken from chapter so many and verse so many from the Upanishad. But nevertheless, the text is there. It's literally the same thing as, as in the Bharadaranya Upanishad. And so, you know, this is not quite revolutionary. Um, well, <laughs> did I do that? Mm. So, you know, some more physical, more tangible examples of the continuity between the Buddha and, and preceding uh, spirituality is, for example, the treatment of the Vedic gods. You see, some Vedic gods, like Indra, have fallen into disuse among Hindus. Well, not in Buddhism. You know, in faraway Japan, you find Buddhist temples where Indra is worshipped. Or, you know, in practically every Japanese village you find Saraswati being worshipped. Benzai Ten. You know, she's part of a system of the 12 solar gods, the 12 Adityas. And so they are worshipped. They were taken along by the Buddhists. The Rama story has been exported. Oh, and important. You know, it is said that, uh, you know, Buddhism good, Rama bad, especially Pollock precisely says that. Now, it is the Buddha himself, it's not the, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad or something, no, it is the Buddha himself who says that he was a reincarnation of Rama. You see? You know, later some, you know, Puranic authors created the system of, they're both incarnations of Vishnu, okay, that may be a Hindu innovation, but the very fact that he is integrated in the existing system with Rama, you see, that is the Buddha's own contribution. So the, the Rama story was exported by Buddhists to Tibet and so on. Or about Indra, you know the Vajra, the Vajra is Indra's weapon, uh, the, the lightning. Now the Vajra has become a standard symbol of Tibetan Buddhism, as you know. And so many of the things the Buddha teaches, you know, that characterize Buddhism are common in Hinduism and existed earlier like asceticism, the value of non-desire is already in the Upanishads, the teaching of reincarnation, of course. And we see reincarnation appears in the Upanishads. It is said explicitly that this is a new doctrine. Uh, there's a doctrine of the Kshatriyas specifically. And so it's no coincidence that two sects in which reincarnation is absolutely central, namely Buddhism and Jainism, were both founded by Kshatriyas. Oh, and about Kshatriyas, one more thing. Uh, when the Buddha dies, he is cremated, and, you know, they have his ashes. What to do with the ashes? And so there are eight different cities that claim his ashes, and ultimately they each get one part. Now, in their claim on the ashes, they say explicitly, we, the elite of this city, we are Kshatriyas, he was a Kshatriya, therefore we have a right to these ashes. So you see, after the Buddha had been teaching for 45 years, in a Buddhist context par excellence, these people, you know, claim their elitist status, their caste. So you see, 
clearly, if the Buddha had taught the opposite, that would have been deemed inappropriate. People wouldn't have been, they, they might have had the same desire, but they would have formulated it differently. So, and one final example, you recently have heard in the news of uh, a terrorist attack in Bangkok where uh, the Phrom temple uh, was attacked and Phrom is simply the local pronunciation of Brahma. You see another Vedic god that has been carried along with uh, Buddhism. So, uh, and, and one more example, the, uh, a very different kind of example. You see, Buddhism is deemed good and everything that's good in Hinduism has been borrowed from Buddhism. You see, before the Buddha there was nothing much. Then the Buddha came and out of the blue he invented everything nice, or his followers did, and then Hindus started taking those things over. Now we already mentioned Nalanda University. There were earlier universities, but it is very often said and assumed that even by Hindus it is said that, you see, the university as an institution is a Buddhist invention. No, that is not true. In the Buddhist sources themselves, we find that two contemporaries of the Buddha, of about the same age, um, King Prasenadi and military general Bandhula, knew each other because they studied together in Takshashila University. Now, the Buddha himself at that age was too young to have founded that university. Okay, so the university existed before him. In fact, that's, that's more or less the time they assume of Panini who was teaching there at that university. So, you see, the university is a Hindu institution. And the Buddhists adopted that institution because it was there and because they were part of Hindu society. You see, there is never the Buddha or anyone after him until Ambedkar in 1956 who breaks with Hinduism in order to become a Buddhist. So it is very important to say, as against the Pollock school, that you see there is a complete continuity between Buddhism and Hinduism. Thank you.